Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, Barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. 
And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone, maybe even uh, a debate, there, there's a level of disagreement, and as you are speaking, um, you use a particular term and your, your debate partner challenges you, can you define your term? And as soon as they said that, you found yourself uh, flummoxed. It's uh, difficult uh, at times to provide a provide a definition for for a term, uh, or maybe maybe even in the the retirement of your own thoughts. I'm I'm reminded of a of a, a quote from Saint Augustine. I want to say it's in Book 11 and his Confessions. He's he's meditating upon the nature of time, and he says, "Well, I I feel like I know very well what time is until I turn around and try to analyze and define it, and then suddenly it gets to be a very slippery thing. I readily make use of the concept every day, and yet as soon as I start trying to analyze it unto definition." It gets slippery and it's it slides through my fingers and and out of my grasp. I have found that with respect to at least a, a few questions concerning forgiveness, that I have sometimes been been paralyzed in a search for a proper definition for forgiveness only to find that at the end of the day, maybe I was barking up the wrong tree. So if you were to look up uh, forgiveness in uh, old Mr. Webster's dictionary, he might give you a definition like this, that um, forgiveness is the putting away of wrath and anger uh, and uh, the putting away of the desire for retribution vengeance. And all in all, uh, those aren't bad definitions, but they certainly wouldn't, wouldn't catch quite the richness of the concept as it is uh, presented in the Bible. I, w I want to uh, just explore a little bit the difference between our concepts and definitions, because at the end of the day, where from time to time I have found myself paralyzed by definition, but um, but the idea of concept ha has frequently broke through the confusion. Let me try to explain a little bit about what I mean. Um, all of our days, uh, as we encounter things. We, we form in our minds, if you will, like, um, like files. So as we encounter human beings throughout our life, we have a, like a file in the mind, if you will, that's labeled human. 
and all of our days we are uh, adding things to that file as we are learning things about human beings our concept of human or humanity is constantly being enriched and with respect to concepts there there's quite literally um, no end to things that you could that you could add as you continue to learn you keep adding things to uh, the folder and uh, so one of the things that we do to try to achieve efficiency in our thinking is that we then put a word on the folder and I've already put a word on it human right we put that word on there so it's uh, five written characters two syllables of sound but if you think about it with those five written characters or those two syllables of sound we are able to think about billions of things on planet earth it's one of the ways that we we achieve economy in our thinking one of the things that makes us very different from from animals is we can we can look at things that are similar and note their similarities remove the mathematical differences like humans all have height but not the same height we remove the mathematical difference they'll have weight but not the same weight we remove the mathematical difference they'll have intelligence but not the same intelligence we remove if you will the mathematical difference and that gives us an abstract concept of human like the human as it as it were and with that abstraction we are able to think about billions of things at one time with just two syllables of sound or five written characters and so in that way we we achieve tremendous intellectual economy uh, not too long ago I was doing some some work on the relationship between definitions and concepts only to discover that I had frequently been frustrated in my thinking for no purpose because at the end of the day a definition is is nothing other than an attempt to try to capture as quickly and economically as possible everything that's present in your folder normally with two important things in view you want to capture the similarity of that concept to other concepts and then its difference from those concepts usually um, philosophers will talk about in definitions you want the genus it's like other things what other things is it like and then the difference how is it different from those things right so you're showing a relationship to other concepts a really good definition is going to do that and at least by implication almost capture almost everything in your folder but if you've been learning a lot about a particular thing it certainly won't capture everything that's connected to the concept and the purpose of definitions is really twofold it's another way of, of uh, being economic in our thinking right the the folder might be really big but can I can I capture the essence of its concept of its um, of its contents very quickly um, and also to make sure that um, sometimes we have the same word 
on two folders that are actually different. And we want to make sure, especially when we're reasoning, that we're not sometimes in the middle of the argument thinking of one concept because of the word, and then other times in the argument thinking about the other. That's known as the logical fallacy of equivocation. I had, along my pilgrim's way, uh, run into some some difficulties with respect to forgiveness. I'm just going to propose one that had to do with uh, with definition. Um, is it possible to forgive? Is it possible for there to be forgiveness when there's no repentance with respect to the offense? Now, as soon as we start to analyze what's in our conceptual folder per pertaining to forgiveness, it's then that we discover that, yes, uh, yes, it is. Much of the material would be uh, fully available, even if the, the offending party is not penitent. So look with me at, at Colossians chapter 3 again. And you start to see things that certainly belong in the conceptual folder that has to do with forgiveness, like things that are related to it, close adjuncts to it, and so on. Um, so you might think about Mr. Webster's definition. I, I wonder if he was thinking about this very passage. But verse 8, in putting off the sins of the old man, among these would be anger, wrath, and malice. And we've talked about this uh, before, right? That there, there is an anger that sinneth not. In other words, anger is not in and of itself sinful. As a matter of fact, it is rightly felt when there is injustice, injustice against the self or uh, against others. But for the Christian, Anger is to be a temporary emotion. It's to uh, rise upon the occasion and then set upon that occasion very uh, quickly. It's one of the reasons why we are exhorted not to let uh, the sun set upon our, our wrath or upon our anger. And we don't want to be overly wooden there. The, the point of the Lord Jesus when he says that is not... Like, if somebody offends you really in the early in the morning, you have leave to be upset about it all day. You just have to get rid of it before nighttime. Although if, if we would do at least that well, we would probably be much better off. But the, but the point is that it is to be uh, very short-lived. As we face the injustice, it's, a, it's appropriately felt. But as soon as that occasion is over, that, that anger ought to be ought to dissipate and it ought to be put away. If it abides, it sinks down into the soul and um, uh, becomes the, the germ of spiritual disease. Uh, it will man begin to manifest itself in uh, abiding malice, a desire for the pain of the uh, offender, and when it stays for a long time, um, it can embitter the life and the heart 
right? And that's not a, a pretty thing. This would be the anger, wrath, and malice that's in view here. And obviously, um, you can't forgive and hold on to these. Whatever else forgiveness might be, it's, it's the letting go or the releasing of offenses, at least in the heart. I'd be willing to concede that you, there still might be external duties with respect to justice that need to be done with respect to offenses. But even then, uh, internally, it has to be released. And whatever else we might say about the concept of forgiveness, it at least entails uh, that much. Then positively, um, verse 12, we're told to put on the new man. He's got uh, bowels of mercies, right? There's a, there's a tenderness uh, toward the other. There's a kindness. There's, there's uh, a humility, right? So we're not going to be as... Uh, as inclined to take offense at things when we, when our thoughts concerning ourselves are are low uh, to begin with, there is a long suffering, like long term bearing, with the difficulties that offenses um, provide, and expressly in the next verse, forbearance. Uh, we'll come back to that maybe next week. Um, but sometimes when it's not useful for edification at the present and perhaps not good for the relationship, some offenses are just passed by altogether as if they, as if they never occurred. But then Paul then exhorts us expressly to forgive one another whenever quarrel arise between man and man. And when we look at the standard for that, very much along the lines of uh, the Lord's Prayer, right? Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And then um, charity is evoked in the very next verse, love, in modern English, which is which is a, a bond between people and even the perfect bond. So when we when we look at these these particular kinds of things, if we were to ask the question, can there be forgiveness without repentance? We would say, well, when we look at much of the what's in the folder, the mental folder of forgiveness, yes, certainly, even if somebody continues in impenitence, certainly I can put away anger and wrath. I can even put away any sort of desire for their, like for any sort of retributive pain on their part, right? Those things are all together and certainly possible. That's, and that's all that's uh, present in Mr. Webster's dictionary. And even while others continue to sin against us, is there anything to prevent Bowels of mercies, kindness, humility, 
long-suffering seems to presuppose that that's continuing. Forbearance seems to presuppose it, right? So I, I think that the answer to that is yes. But something else that's in our folder, and I think that this is where the tension comes from, is that uh, forgiveness has a great tendency toward the restoration of relationships. And you might say it like this, that hard work is going to be necessary for the restoration of the relationship, but it's not necessarily sufficient for it. It's not necessarily going to accomplish all by itself the restoration of the relationship, although a loving heart will certainly greatly desire it. Um, some weeks ago when, um, uh, when uh, the group was meeting in, in Wisconsin, I was able to beam in and, and talk a little bit about uh, Joseph. It seems very clear that when uh, Joseph uh, is reunited with his brothers, he knows it, they don't, but he's been reunited with his brothers, his heart is certainly toward them right from the very beginning. You never catch any sort of wrath, anger, malice. And it's all the more amazing because probably there's nobody within the hearing of my voice that has been wronged by any other person the way that Joseph was wronged by his brothers. And Joseph was wronged by his brothers, not for his own wrongdoing, but largely because of his own spirituality. Uh, they hated him for it, right? So they it's kind of like what John describes between Cain and Abel. Cain hated his his brother simply because his brother's works were good and his his own works were uh, were evil. But in spite of the that loving, friendly, forgiving disposition on Joseph, that does not mean that the way is clear for the restoration of relationship. Because if the if his brethren are impenitent, he can still put away wrath and a desire for vengeance. But you wouldn't want to take those vipers to your bosom, right? These these were people that showed themselves uh, fully capable of a murderous hatred, and you wouldn't want to necessarily uh, bring that into close fellowship. And so he puts them to trial to see if there has been true repentance in them. Basically, he he recreates in their uh, younger brother Benjamin the same thing that they had faced with him, right? He, he imperils Benjamin. He brings Benjamin into uh, threat of bondage. Uh, they are able to walk away, right? Leave the younger brother in bondage and they themselves walk away and escape if they're inclined. But they show that they're no longer inclined to the old sin. Uh, they repent and they are willing to uh, suffer so that Benjamin can go free. It's then when he sees that they're penitent that um, forgiveness can finally have the full accomplishment of what it desires, which is the restoration of the relationship. So again, the heart work of forgiveness can be done irrespective 
of repentance of the offending party. But it can't necessarily, sometimes all by itself it can, depending upon what the offense is, sometimes all by itself it can maintain or restore the relationship. But sometimes, depending upon the kind of the offense, sometimes it can't. Sometimes for the relationship to be restored, there has to be repentance, usually because that sin is pre presenting a particular kind of danger where you wouldn't want to bring it um, close to the bosom, even if um, on another level you, you earnestly desired uh, to do so. I wanted to to just bring one thing. It's It's been lurking there in the background and, and bring it into uh, the foreground. Forgiveness is certainly uh, the fruit of a loving heart. And again, love is such a rich, multifaceted concept in uh, the scripture. Um, you know, you can consider... Uh, its springs, you can, can consider its character in the heart, you can consider its fruits and effects in the life. It is a multifaceted, uh, rich concept. But whatever else we might say, uh, lo with love there is a complacency toward the beloved. In other words, there's a delight in the beloved. And in conjunction with that, there's there's also a, a sincere desire for uh, the beloved's welfare, right? So both of those things at the very least, so there's a complacency or a delight in the beloved, and then there's the desire for the beloved to be uh, thriving, uh, prospering spiritually. Uh, obviously, there's a connection between love and forgiveness. If there's a, a, a delight in the beloved, certainly you're not going to want to hang, hang on to wrath, anger, and malice when offenses come, because that's going to be a barrier to um, uh, freeness and fullness in uh, the relationship. And if you are sincerely desiring the welfare of the beloved, it is very hard to desire their pain. I do know that they understand that there can be a kind of uh, pain that is salutary, but isn't it, isn't love always hoping that there might be a way for improvements to be made without pain, without visiting the school of pain, right? So, there's a very close connection between love and forgiveness, and we might even say it like this. Certainly, the loving heart is going to be a forgiving heart. So um, one of the reasons I wanted to get into, into all of this is um, uh, to challenge us with, res with respect to our uh, relationships. As, as I mentioned last week, uh, everybody always wants practical preaching or uh, experiential or sometimes called experimental preaching because it just sounds, it sounds really nice, right? And it sounds like what it should be, and it is. The, the language of experimental 
preaching is is really interesting because it it carries with it the idea of experiments or uh, putting our graces to trial so that we can really know and understand what's going on inside of us. That's holding the Bible up as the looking glass so we can look into it and see what we really look like. Not the thoughts that we like to entertain about ourselves, but what's really going on. Most people that are sincere Christians will not want to think that they are holding unforgiveness in the heart, right? We, we all know that that's a, that that's a huge no-no, right? So, so no Christian person is wanting to think, I, yeah, I've got a bunch of unforgiveness and bitterness toward somebody or whatever. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not there. And so here we, we look for a way to put it to trial. If there's, if there's unforgiveness in my heart, is there any way to expose it? And so I want you to I want you to think about your relationships and try to focus on uh, troubled relationships, perhaps one or two already come to mind. And the challenge is, do you want that relationship to be restored? Because love is going to want it. Now, that doesn't guarantee it will be restored, but love is going to want the restoration of that, which means it's going to have to put away the wrath, malice, anger, the desire for retribution. There's the desire for the restoration of uh, the relationship in its fullness. So we, we ask the question, and sometimes maybe our own hearts start to answer that um, like either yes like yeah I do I, I always have I you know I've been looking for means I've been studying means or maybe we're like not really <laughs> and if if we find that answer maybe we are already starting to have answer enough that we still have work to do in our hearts with respect to uh, with respect to forgiveness, but maybe one other way, maybe if maybe if that unforgiveness is still hiding, maybe another way to say it is: Have you done anything to try to restore that relationship? Because interestingly enough, the Scripture will not let us off the hook, whether we are the offender or the offended. When there's trouble in the relationship, we have scriptural exhortations to go to the offending brother or to the offended brother and try to settle the relationship and preserve it. Let's look at the couple of texts. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And since this is the most famous disciplinary text in all of the Bible. You will probably know it very well. Look with me at Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, 
go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And I don't want to lose the main thrust of that by multiplying words, but I want you to notice here, your brother is contemplated as the offender. Um, but if you have been offended by a brother, the scripture lays upon you the responsibility to go to him and try to get the stumbling block and the barrier removed. But now turn with me to back to Matthew chapter 5. So that, that would be when like your, your brother is the offender. Now look at verses 23 and 24 of um, chapter 5. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So here... Um, uh, the self is contemplated as the offender, at least potentially. Your your brother is offended at you, and whether that um, whether it, the text doesn't seem to differentiate or necessarily care too much whether or not he's justly offended at you. It's just that he is, and so so whether. Uh, you've done something to offend your brother or he has done something to offend you, it doesn't matter. The Lord lays upon us the obligation to go and to try to close that relationship and uh, bring healing to it. And we get another note here just before leaving this text behind of how important this is uh, to the Lord he sets a certain priority upon it uh, with respect to uh, worship. And this, the more highly you, you value worship, the more striking this becomes. But the Lord is wanting the way clear spiritually for um, a certain sort of freedom of heart and spirit in worship. So to uh, to remove this burden, the burden that rests upon the soul, the burden that rests between the relationships, he would have this cleared, and then um, uh, engage, engaging in, in worship with that fullness and that, that freedom that is, that is afforded. So let's just, just back up to the, to the notes of trial. Uh, and again, this, this is important. If we're going to have relationships in a fallen world, forgiveness is going to be a must because there are going to be offenses. Or to put it very bluntly and very starkly, no forgiveness, no relationships. The end. Right? No forgiveness, no relationships. That's it. But if we want to... If we value relationships, and we should, we're being taught by many texts, but just the text that's right in front of us, that relationships are very important. That means we need to forgive. But part of being able to forgive is recognizing when it's when it's not happening. 
So again, just walk back through the steps. What relationships in your life are troubled? Ask yourself the question, do I desire the restoration of this relationship? Right? If already your heart is like, uh, I'm not sure, right? Right away, the alarm bell goes off. You've got a problem and you've got a heart work to do. And it's an important one. The relationship is at stake. But with respect to our relationships among each other as, as brethren, um, we're not honoring and glorifying God before the face of the world when these things remain in our midst, when they um, uh, remain between us. We can talk all we want about lifting Christ's fallen banner and all of those kinds of things, but if we're not forgiving in our relationships, the world is not going to be impressed. And we can put whatever kinds of pretty mottos or whatever we want, but we are neglecting uh, fundamental things, right? The world is not going to be impressed. So there, so there really is much at stake. But if you think to yourself, yeah, I think I, I, think I want a re restoration of the relationship. So maybe there is forgiveness there. Then the second question is, all right, so if you if you really want a restoration of the relationship, then you will have done something to try to restore the relationship. So have you? Right? And and the and the Lord Jesus teaches it both ways. If if you've offended, go. If you've been offended, go. If there is an offense standing between you and somebody else, go and do all that you can to remove that so that the, the relationship might be restored in its fullness. Now, I've already presented it negatively, but positively, uh, when we do that, there's nothing but benefit. To get rid of that internal weight is, is so good, such a salutary thing for uh, the soul. You get further confirmation as you're forgiving others. You get further confirmation that you're actually also enjoying the forgiveness of the Lord. So it strengthens your assurance. Um, a, an additional healthy dynamic is introduced into our relationships. Not just that we forgave on the one particular occasion, but we're learning how to do it. Uh, forgiveness is becoming not just something that happens every once in a while or haphazardly, but we're learning what it is to walk in that forgiveness consistently, forgiving others as we would like to be forgiven. And this is one of the great marvels of the Christian religion as lost and dying sinners see us doing this and knowing that this is not native to fallen flesh. They will see that we are Christ's disciples. They will see the image of the Father being renewed in us, and then they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let us pray together.